Well, good morning again, everybody. Would you please open your Bibles to the book of Genesis? Uh, chapter 6 is where we're going to have our main portion of teaching this morning. Um, this is our second message in our Advent series, Christmas from the Beginning. And uh, this Advent season, uh, one of our goals is to just do the best we can uh, to keep Christmas in the context of the entire redemptive storyline of the Bible. So I, we just don't, I think, I think we, we, we just won't get as all that God wants to get, a, uh, all that God wants us to get out of these truths if we just treat Christmas like a standalone thing. It's not a standalone thing. It's a part of a redemptive storyline. And so that's what we're trying to do is Christmas from the beginning, we're actually wanting to point out how God was preparing the human heart for the celebration of the birth of Christ many, many years ago, and, uh, and what that can mean for us today as we prepare to celebrate the birth of Christ in our families, in our home, and in our church. Uh, last, uh, last Sunday, we studied the fall of man into sin and the promise of God to send his eternal son, born of a virgin to crush the head of the serpent and rescue sinners from judgment. And that was from Genesis chapter 3. So this morning, okay, get ready. This morning, we're going to study Noah and the ark. Go ahead, you can make funny facts. I, I, I'm, just, I'm just thinking, you guys are thinking I've lost my noodle. Uh, what? We're going to celebrate Christmas? with a study of Noah and the ark. Because really, Billy, nothing says Christmas like Noah and the ark. Nothing says Christmas. Well, please hang in there with me. I actually think this is one of the best texts that we could study during Advent. Because it reminds us just how desperately we needed God to send his son to save us from our sins. And I promise, I'll make you a promise, I will not have Eric sing for one of our Christmas carols, the Lord told Noah to build him an arky arky. I promise we will not sing that as a Christmas carol made out of barky barky. We, we won't do that. We won't go that far with this. If you're taking notes or you have them in the notes in your hand. Our main point this morning is this. Advent calls us to remember that God gave great sinners a great Savior for Christmas. God gave great sinners a great Savior for Christmas. And as we're studying that, I just want to encourage you, just as these days unfold toward December 25th, let's just be careful. And not, let's, let's not be robbed of the joy. that the, When we substitute the sentiment of Christmas for the Savior of sinners, it just lessens everything. We don't want to substitute a sentiment about a holiday and put that in place of the Savior of sinners. So let's just be sensitive to that as we study the text this morning. Um, so let's, 
Let's begin by reading Genesis chapter 6. I'm going to give you a couple other references here as we read. But in Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I'm sorry that I made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. And the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. So we'll stop there for the Genesis 6 passage. Then jump to Genesis 7. Let's look at verses 1 through 5. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens, also male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights. And every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. And now, would you turn to Genesis 9? Let's begin in verse 8. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again there shall be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between you and me and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. For I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. Well, Heavenly Father, uh, would you just usher us now. Would you escort us through the pages of Scripture 
through the pages of redemptive history and use this text to show us why we so needed the birth of Christ to save us from our sins and to crush the head of the serpent and to one day make all things new. Please, Lord, we love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the first point is this. So remember last week we talked about in Genesis 3.15, there would be the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And there would be enmity between those two, those two entities. And essentially the seed of the serpent are just unbelievers that are going to come from generation to generation. People born and dead in sin who reject the good news of God's saving grace. And there's going to be people who come and are made alive to God and follow him. And there's going to be an enmity there. And then one day, through those, those lineages, the lineage of the unbelieving and the lineage of the believing, God would bring one seed who would be the one to crush the serpent's head and set us free from sin. So what I want to encourage you to do is to think of, a new, as your Bible reading plan in 2024, if you're doing a chronological Bible reading plan, I want to encourage you, follow the seed, follow the seed toward Christmas. And that's what we're going to do a little bit here because I think it's just going to give you a greater sense of just how desperately we needed God to send the Savior. So when, when uh, in Genesis 3.15, we heard last week, so we're going to go do a, a quick overview of Genesis 3, 4, and 5. And in Genesis 3, we heard God declare war. There would be a spiritual battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. There would be conflict between those who would not follow Christ with those who would follow Christ. And that through the offspring of the woman, there would come one God-man, born of a virgin, crushing the serpent's head. Born to raise the sons of earth, as the hymn says. Born to give them second birth. That was the promise of Genesis 3.15. So from the very beginning, guys, there was an expectation of a coming Messiah right from the very beginning. They took God at his word. I don't know if you realize that. The, the, the scripture is going to help us realize that more this morning. Uh, but, so the question would be, when would he come and how would we know him? Well, let's, let's look at that question. And I think it serves our souls to help us better understand the redemptive storyline of Scripture. And that's what I hope this is going to achieve for you. And why there were so many times when it seemed like sin and evil were triumphing over the godly line. It seemed like, is, is there really ever going to be the fulfillment of the promise of the Messiah to come? Don't you feel like that? Probably more often than maybe we'd want to admit publicly. It feels like evil is winning. It feels like darkness is darkening if it could. Sometimes it's hard to see the light at the end of the tunnel. That's why these storylines of Scripture can help us and just give us evidence after evidence after evidence that Jesus is Lord and that God keeps his people and he keeps his promises. And so that's what we're going to see now. So in Genesis 3, we, we've seen the first sin, haven't we? 
And, and we will soon, as we study this morning, we're going to see how that sin affected everyone and everything on the earth. We saw the first blame shifting. And remember we talked about that's not just some mild-mannered sort of thing. This was blame shifting in that it, con- it wanted God to condemn to hell the other person and spare them and to save them and spare them. It was the woman you gave me was, was much more than just verbiage. It was what God did to the man's heart, not what sin did to the man's heart. Remember, this was the guy who says, oh, bone of my bone. He's singing over her. He's, he's essentially being poetic. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He's making covenant promises to her in this first marriage. That heart was so corrupted by sin that he's now saying, condemn her, spare me. Blame shifting at its core is harsher than you think. Blame shifting is hard. So we see the first blame shifting. We saw the first fight in marriage. We see the, first, the, the hiding of things from each other. How they begin to become more distant from each other. They're hiding things from each other. And we start to see how a husband and wife begin to contend for superiority in the marriage. Rather than to love and serve each other the way God had originally called them. We see the first promise of God sending the virgin-born Savior to destroy the works of the devil, save us from sin and judgment, and make us his own. And we get into, into Genesis 4, and there's the first realization that the ongoing practice of sin is not just a few mistakes made by Adam and Eve. I mean, guys, I think we just sometimes do that. I think that we... We have this idea that there's just a few bad apples that spoil the whole bunch. That people are basically good. Now we're learning here that sin infected everyone and everything. We're going to see that as this unfolds. There's the first hope that God had already sent the serpent crusher. Did you know that, that Eve, when Cain was born, that Eve thought, this is the Messiah. Do you know what Cain means? I have gotten that man with the help of the Lord. Wouldn't you have felt that way? You're, you're, you've, you're guilty before God of sin. God's promised you a rescuer from your sin. The wages of sin is death. And he's promised that that rescuer would be born of a woman. Well, you're the only woman at this point, And so you have a baby. Wouldn't you think and Adam think this must be him? Isn't that the way we are with just our lives? We want the answer right now. If we're in trouble, we want bailed out right now. And so here's what she said. I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Oh, but boy, it wasn't the seed of the woman, was it? It wasn't going to be godly heritage. It was Cain. It was Cain, the one who was about to murder his brother. They had the next son, Abel. So dad Adam and mom Eve would soon get a graphic picture of the enmity between the unbelieving offspring of the serpent 
and the believing offspring of the woman, and it's in their own household. How many of us have that situation? We just have unbelievers. There's unbelievers in our own household. There's unbelievers in our extended family. And, and it, affects the, it affects our relationships. And, and so now they're experiencing what that's like just in their own family. God taught a lesson that there's only one way to approach the Lord in worship. You have to come to him by faith. And you have to come to him in the blood of a sacrifice of an innocent victim. Innocent dies for the guilty. Cain did not do that, and Adam and Abel did. Cain doesn't want to come to God the way God requires him. He wants to come to God, but it's in his own way. And, and so already he's getting aggravated about that. He's already mad that God accepted his brother's sacrifice and not his own. And that anger turns into murder. Guys, do you know that that's the ultimate destination of anger? When, when, do, you, do you ever kind of go, when you, when you know that one of the commandments is thou shalt not murder, and then Jesus really clarifies it in the Beatitudes when he essentially says that if you've, if you've been angry in your heart, you've what? You've committed murder. Because that is the ultimate de destination of where anger wants to go without restraining grace without a God who intervenes again and again and again. Anger wants to eliminate somebody. That's really what it is. I'll, I, if I have to say harsh things to silence you and eliminate you from the argument, I'll say harsh things if it, if it means that I get to win. We do some really bad stuff. Well, it's, here it is. This is now infecting humanity. So we see the first murder. We see the first lie. In verses 9 and 10, God says to Cain, where is your brother? And what does Cain say? I don't know. He knew. He knew. He killed him. He, the man's not, not getting up and moving. He knows. He's still there. And essentially says, and I don't care. Remember the, the phrase? Am I my brother's keeper? Oh, man. There's nothing new, is there? There's nothing new. I want you to think of what's happening here. This is the first death of a child before the death of parents. You know how that affects us. It just, death feels wrong. Let alone your child dying before the parent. This is the first experience of that. Are you, are, are you just getting a sense here? Wow, we need Jesus to come more than we realize. And this child has died because I committed sin against God. They were born into sin because Adam and Eve. Not that doesn't translate into every parent. But, but they're, they're, they were already dealing with the guilt of turning away from the Lord. And now one of their kids in rejection of God kills the other sibling who was a follower of God. It was the first, essentially they lost two sons, didn't they? Because, because Cain got exiled. So in one act, they lose two sons. Let's don't, just don't read the Bible as though it's just some fantasy. This is real people experiencing real pain and real need for someone to rescue them. 
There's the first expression of self-pity and sorrow for being caught. That was what Cain was. And God was, was telling him of the consequences of his sin. And Cain was just bellyaching about it. Oh, this is too hard on me. This is not fair. This is not fair. So here we come. The not fair argument begins to happen. And then there's these weaving ends of the shadow of the gospel. And we see this because of Hebrews. But do you remember that the blood of Abel cried out to God from the ground? Do you remember that? It was a cry for justice and redemption. And in Hebrews 12, it says that Christ's blood would speak a better word than the blood of Abel. Christ's blood speaks too, but it speaks of justice satisfied and forgiveness given. And the line of Cain grows. The offspring of the serpent, the prevalence of the unbelievers multiplies. There begins to be the start of sexual sin, adultery, and polygamy. And we learn that in verse 23 with a man named Lamech who begins having multiple wives. He names two. There's two named in the account. And then we begin to see the first act of revenge and murder because of revenge. And that was Lamech again. He was wounded by somebody and he wanted justice. So listen to this. How much, how much justice do you think when, when, when you hear interviews of people on the street and they're demanding justice for their ethnicity or for their gender or for whatever it is, is it really justice they want? I think nine times out of ten, it's vengeance. It's revenge. I want someone else to suffer. That's what it is. Well, guess where that started? That started with Lamech. He begins to, to talk about being justified to murder the person that, that wounded him. Can you see why Adam and Eve would have thought, evil is winning. Darkness is covering the land. God, you said you'd, you'd give a son. Where's no son? All we're seeing is the evidence of the unbelief. It's the evidence of evil. And in verse 25, God was faithful to bring forth another offspring of the woman, another follower of God. When they had Seth. And you know what Seth's name means. God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. And that wasn't just a family thing. That wasn't just, oh, thank you that I have another son. It was thank you that there's another follower of God that will, God will bring the Messiah through this godly seed. And it was that time that people started calling on the name of the Lord. Chapter 5 is, and I encourage you to go back and read the details. There's just no way I have time to go through it all. Chapter 5, you know what I think chapter 5 is most known for is that God said the day you eat of it, you'll die. So you're going to see all these amazing years of living that people had before the flood. How many years people live, but what you're going to see again and again and again is this. He lived and he died. And he died. And he died. And I will die. And my wife will die. And my sons and my daughters-in-law, my grandkids will die. How is sin and suffering and brokenness in your family weighing you down this Christmas? You see why Christmas has to be more than a sentiment? We need the Savior, don't we? 
How is sin or suffering and brokenness in our world, in our schools, our government, in crime, pornography, idolatry, materialism, wars and rumors of wars, how is that weighing you down this Christmas? Do you feel the world is broken? You know that song. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. Is all creation groaning? Do you feel your need for the Christ of Christmas? The Christ who can rescue us from sin and judgment, silence Satan, redeem the worst of marriages, reconcile and restore the most broken of families, restore hope and heal broken hearts of those who've lost loved ones to death with the promise that death doesn't have the final word, that he is the resurrection and the life. You know that all that darkness is not going to stop the light from getting through. Do you know that? We do. How do we know that? Well, let's keep reading. Let's keep reading. So here's the second point. Remember our need for Christmas. So follow the seed toward Christmas so that we'll, we'll just see how God preserved a godly line of people. He, he kept the, it was God who kept people believing, not people who kept themselves believing. God protected and did all of that. And, and so that the Savior would come at the right time in the right place. So that's following the seed toward Christmas. Let's remember our need for Christmas. And this is where the value of chapter 6 is huge. Eve said that the devil made her do it. You remember that in chapter 3? None, no one can say that anymore. Our sin is not the devil's fault or the fault of others or the fault of our world. Sin is a heart issue. Yet one that, that few are willing to recognize or confess or repent of. And so God causes a man to be born. Here comes another seed. A man who would be the seed of the woman that God would use to tell the world what God sees and what the real problem of man is now. So in, in chapter 5, verse 28, we get to know that man. His name is Noah. And it says, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son, and he called his name Noah, saying, saying, it's in your notes, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Sounds like he's trying to celebrate Christmas, doesn't it? Is this him? Is this him? This is him. This, at least this is a special one, Lord. Could this be the one? Could this be the one? The thought of, of God sending the serpent crusher, the Savior, is not a new thought. They were, they were perhaps looking for him more than we're looking for his second coming. They were probably more passionate about this because they felt their need for the Savior. That's what I think is, our, is, is probably our most woeful thing as believers. We go into the Christmas holiday and we feel more of our need. So how about this? You ever hear this? Are you ready for Christmas? Not a bad sentence. But I'm going to answer that all. Well, let's see. I've been looking at all the Amazon lists 
which I didn't even know there existed. So my kids are learning things here about, well, what is this person interested in? What is that person interested in? And, oh, have I gotten Jan that, that one thing? You know, there's that one thing. It's like, she, she'll hint and she'll give me some ideas, but there's that one thing I want to get for her. And no, I'm not ready for Christmas. If that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown, I am not ready. I am not ready for Christmas. Oh, that's not why we need Christmas. It's not why we need Christmas. And that's what this book is, is showing us. There, there was an expectancy. There was a recognition. I need, I need the, the seed. I need the Savior more than I need anything else. And so does my family. And so does my city. Will the birth of this man be the one who saves us from the curse and crushes the serpent's head? He wasn't that man but that his birth and life foreshadow the birth of the coming Savior. Now you're getting a little sense of why there's Christmas in Genesis. Christmas from the beginning. You know that hymn, Do You Hear What I Hear? You know that hymn? So some of the lines in it is, Said the night wind to the little lamb, Do you see what I see? Said the little lamb to the shepherd boy, do you hear what I hear? Said the shepherd boy to the mighty king, do you know what I know? Said the mighty king to the people everywhere. Well, you know what? In Genesis chapter 6, it's not so much important, do you see what I see? Do you see what God sees? Do I see what God sees? I, I need help with that, guys. I need the scriptures to help me with that. I need my brothers and sisters to help me see what God sees. And so let's, let's look at that. In verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. God wants us to see what he sees. Because if we do, then we'll see how much we need the Savior. We do, we'll, we'll see how much how serious our sin is. And if we do, we'll be amazed at how great grace is. He says wickedness. This wickedness of man was great in the earth. Remember, God gave great sinners a great Savior. The wickedness was great on the earth. The, the, the word wickedness is a visible expression of sin nature and its behavior. This great wickedness was great in the earth. It wasn't just a few bad people. It had infected every human being. Everyone born came infected with it already. So God right away is declaring that we are all great sinners. Uh, Isaiah 57, 20, 21 speak about this wickedness. It says, but the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet. And its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says God, for the wicked. Do you never think about that? What was it saying? It's saying that the storm that tosses the sea is not to blame for the mire and the dirt. That's the, the, the sea didn't create mire and dirt. What it's saying is the mire and the dirt were already there. The storm just revealed what was there. Biblical counseling class took many years ago. A man said, he actually did this. He put a brand new tube of toothpaste, undid the lid, and then he just sat it there and he said, okay, students, what, what's going to happen if I take my fist 
and I'm going to take my, just with all the strength I have, I'm going to force my fist down onto this tube of toothpaste right in the middle of it. What's going to happen? What are you telling me? <laughs> toothpaste is going to go. It's not a trick question. It's just toothpaste is going to come out. I started wondering, how much did I pay for this class? So, <laughs> I just, um, but it was one of the best illustrations and one that I've needed for my own heart. And then he said, did the force of my fist, did external pressures create magically toothpaste? No. The pressure just revealed what was already there. What's the pressure revealing about you right now? What's the pressure revealing about going on in your marriage right now? What, what, how is pressure causing you to react? And how many of us are saying somehow that pressure magically made me angry. That's what, that's, what, that's what this text is getting at here. And it, 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 it didn't stop there. Let's go to 5b. He goes and he, he says, it's an inside thing, folks. 5b, he says, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil. So we can't say our spouse made us mad. We can't say another person's style of clothing made us lust. We can't say that, well, it was comparing my old house to the new house that I want that made me covet. Or the threat of being laid off that made me worry. Or, being, or that being sinned against made me bitter. That somehow is the pressure. It's not me. It's the pressure. James speaks of this in 1, 14 and 15. I have that in your notes too. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. There's already an existing problem inside of him. And then desire, when it's conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. These things were already existed because we inherited them in Adam. We're born into this world as great sinners. But let's let the verse continue to speak. God saw we were sinners outwardly, inwardly. And did you see that last word? Continually. Continually. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Does that mean that the only thing expressed in us is evil? Is it just, that's just it? No. Does it mean we're as always as bad as we could be? No. But it is telling us that the God who sees everything perfectly says there's no dimension of our lives that is untouched by sin. There's no part of my life, of my body or my soul, that's not impacted by sin. It's not just mere behavioral issues. It's not just moral issues. It's personal. Let me tell you how this is personal. The text is telling us about what we love. That's where it gets personal, you guys. I, I know sometimes I probably I made mistakes in just talking to you about sin as just kind of slapping us on the hand for it. It's just the behavior. It's just the behavior. No, it's more personal than that. It's that you are loving something else or someone else more than you're loving God. That's the sin issue. It's a love issue. It's a love issue. And that's what happened in the fall. That's what happened in the fall. God made us to experience his all-satisfying love. And God was most glorified in Adam and Eve when they were most satisfied in his love, right? Just to kind of do John Piper there. 
The second greatest joy of being loved by God is that then we get to love someone else. If you want to know the greatest joys of life, it's being loved by God and then loving someone else in God's name. There's life. (laughs) There's life. It's loving my wife like that. Being loved by God, loving my wife like that. Being loved by God, loving my kids and grands like that. Being loved by God, loving you like that. Do you, it should, people should see it's a delight to love you. It's a deli- Do you know that? It's a delight to love you guys. It is a delight to love you guys. Love for God and one another was to affect every dimension and part of our lives and body and soul. Let's just, let's just take out chapter 6, verse 5. And t- instead of talking about sin being, being expressed outwardly, and, and, and it, it's an inward problem, and it's a continual problem, Just think of what it would be like to have love being received outwardly and experienced inwardly and continually being given to other people. That's what the Christian life was supposed to be. And the entrance of sin destroyed all that. It created both a love and a hate. Sin brought hate for God and love for self. that's, That's what's happening here. And this is what love does. Romans 3, 10 and 18 as it is written, there are none righteous. So this is like Moses and Paul just decided to write the same things. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they haven't known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. That's the condition of humanity. And and Genesis just gives us such a weighty experience of how much we needed God to send his eternal son to be born of a virgin and laid in a manger. Piper really gets at this thing of, of that it's a love thing. It's a love thing. And this is why there's a judgment. This is why God gets grieved. How did, have you ever been loved by somebody and they turn their back on you? I think most of us probably have experienced that. Either a dating relationship, a spouse, a child, and a parent. It can happen in so many, many ways. You're not grieved when that happens. You're not heartsick. You're not angry. This is about love. It's about being loved by God and loving God and loving others. But there's a problem that we love ourselves. Piper says it this way it's in your notes. What is sin? It is the glory of God, not honored. The holiness of God, not reverenced. The greatness of God, not admired. The power of God, not praised. The truth of God, not sought. The wisdom of God, not esteemed. The beauty of God, not treasured. The goodness of God, not savored. The faithfulness of God, not trusted. The commandments of God, not obeyed. The justice of God, not respected. The wrath of God, not feared. The grace of God, not cherished. The presence of God, not prized. And the person of God, not loved. 
That is sin. And that's, the, that's what's being described in Genesis chapter 6. God's response was grief. You saw that over the sin, sinful condition of the people he loves. He takes no delight in the death of the wicked, but he is a just God, and there has to be a just judgment for unrepentant sin. And verse 7 begins to declare that judgment. I will blot out man. Verse 13, I've determined to make an end of all flesh. Verse 17, I'm going to bring the flood of waters. But God's justice and anger is not like ours. He's, it's, it's not impulsive. It's not out of control. It's not rooted in pride. It's a justice that's appropriate for the crime and in consideration for who the crime was committed against. Think about that. Why would, why would sinning against a, an eternally holy God have such a severe punishment? Well, how about this? Why is there such a difference between jaywalking and assault? It's because of who the crime was against. The closer that your crime in culture gets to a human being, the higher the stakes, the greater the justice, the greater the punishment. And then when it gets to murder, it's the worst because you've killed a human being made in God, God's image. Well, if the punishment is the greatest when you've, when you've hurt someone made in God's image, what is it like if you've hurt the God who made all people? You see why the, there's, it's, an, it's, a, it's a just judgment. And we should have no problem conceiving of God, a God of justice because we're justice-hungry people and we're so sinful about the way we go about it. I want mercy, and I want you to give justice to whoever hurts me. So we ought to understand justice. But Advent is a reminder that God gave great sinners a great Savior for Christmas. So as we prepare to just celebrate the grace, can I ask you this? Is the weight of your sin weighing heavily on you this Christmas? It could be guilt. It could be that you're just so sick of a habit that you're doing. And it's hurting others. You know it's hurting your walk with God. You know God still loves you. It's hurting other people. But it's weighing you down. Oh, isn't the good news that God sent his son to rescue us, to forgive us completely, to give us a new life? Can't that give you fresh hope for celebrating Christmas well this season? And then we rejoice in the grace of Christmas. It's almost like here's Paul and Moses really kind of walking hand in glove. Remember, one of your, our favorite passages in Ephesians 2 is, you know, Paul describes her being dead in sin, dominated by the devil, doomed to face the wrath of God. And then it says, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, gave us undeserved and unconditional grace. Moses says the same thing here about Noah. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This was an Old Testament, Ephesians 2. This is Noah being saved by sovereign grace. Noah was as sinful as anyone else on the, on the planet. Grace alone he was saved by through faith alone in the promise that God would send the Messiah. So like in Genesis 3, as soon as God declares judgment, he shouts out grace. He mentions judgment, but right away he says grace, saving grace, sanctifying grace. And that's where we see 
that that saving grace caused Noah to live a righteous and blameless life. He didn't receive grace because he was righteous and blameless. Grace came, and that grace enabled him to live that righteous life, and it kept him to the end because God made a covenant with him to preserve him. And God then called him and, and saved him and called him. He was a preacher of righteousness for his generation, 120 years the book of Genesis says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. God was always being patient, not wanting anyone to perish. And then the time came. The flood comes. The door shuts. Noah and his family were safe in, were safe in the salvation that the ark supplied. The wrath of the storm was borne by the ark that they were kept in. You see Jesus and all of that? Jesus is the living ark, isn't he? He's the living ark. And if you're in him, if, if this is Jesus and this is you, and you become a follower of Christ, this is what happens to you. You are in Christ. And the judgment of God falls on Jesus and not on you. The forgiveness and the love and the mercy and the grace and the new life of Jesus, you receive that. The living ark of Jesus receives the storm of God's wrath. And so you, you, you see the gospel being just foreshadowed and presented here. So the storm ends, and here's where this is where we, we, we stop. Eric, if you want to come, please. Um, this is where we stop, that the flood stops, the, the rain stops, flood subsides, and they get out. Sounds like a new beginning, doesn't it? Don't you want a new beginning? Don't you love second chances? What did that new beginning and second chances end in? Just a wonderful new world? Same old sin. Even in Noah, didn't it? Noah did some pretty big sin after that. Um, so I put this in your notes. What good is a second chance without a second birth? What good is a new beginning without a new heart? Advent reminds us that God gave great sinners a great Savior for Christmas, a Savior who would not only be punished for our sin, but one who also gives us a new heart to love God and others. Would you stand with me and let's close by, by seeing the great Savior that great sinners like you and me needed. And so let's turn to the book of Luke, chapter 2. And I want you to be thinking of, the, of that song, Do you feel the world is broken? Do you feel that darkened, the dark is darkening? Do you feel the world is groaning? Do you feel that evil is winning? Do you feel like you're grieving over the death of a loved one is winning? That there's, do, you, do, you, do you feel like the, the, your sin habits, there's just no hope to change? No. No. God gave great sinners a great Savior. And we're going to read about that great Savior right now. So I want you to think about this. I'm going to, change, I'm going to add a little verbiage to kind of connect the Old Testament and the New. So this is in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. 
So he looks up and here's a question. Do you feel the world is broken? I do. You feel the dark and dark is darkening. I'm, I can't remember the lyrics well. But we do. How about this? And in that same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. By night. Remember, kids two years old and under, there's, there's, there's murderous plots going on. That night is not just the sun not being there. This is a dark night. Thousands of years of dark nights. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with fear, appropriately so. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, a living ark, who is Christ Jesus the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in the manger. This living ark will at least temporarily be docked in the manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Moses foreshadowed some of this. But Jesus is the reality, isn't he? Oh, guys, let's worship for all that he's worth. Amen. And that's how Noah and the ark teaches us about Christmas, Charlie Brown. <laughs>